In our study of Genesis, we come this morning to chapter 19, and we will be considering verses 1 through 29. These are the words of God. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned to him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called the lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place? For we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law it seemed he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry and said, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain." Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. 
Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass... When God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Our God and Father, we pray now by the Spirit that you would guide us and open up this scripture to us of these remarkable events which you accomplished so long ago and which you use so often in scripture as example for us. So we pray that you would open and instruct us and teach us, make us strong and godly to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this story of the destruction of Sodom and its sister cities in the Jordan Plain, it's a very significant episode of Scripture, and it is one of those that is well known even among non-Christians the world over. And it is cited over and over again in the rest of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New, as an example of for many different spiritual and moral lessons. What's important for us to remember, first of all, as we come to this episode, is that it's part of a single narrative with chapter 18 even though the two chapters seem so different from one another in terms of the action involved. Chapter 18, you'll remember, involved the Lord accompanied by the two angels, all in appearance as men, visiting Abraham and Sarah, receiving their hospitality, and building up their faith, particularly Sarah's. Chapter 19 involves the destruction of Sodom and the other cities of the plain. So very different. What's vital for us to see is that these two very different uh, uh, chapters are tied together by one overarching theme of God exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth while building up his spiritual children as he does so. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 talks about this same theme. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor the mighty man in his might, nor the rich man in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. That, in a nutshell, is why we were created. And why we were redeemed. To know God and to image Him as He exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. And that is what chapters 18 and 19 are about. So the first thing I want us to note is how God goes about this. Is how as He is exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth how he involves his children in his work. God involves his children in his work so that they grow in their knowledge and imitation 
of God. Now, we already saw this back in chapter 18 when the Lord told Abraham of his plans concerning Sodom. He basically took Abraham and made him a member of his advisory council, as it were. So Abraham ends up advocating with the Lord based on his knowledge of God's own character. And he advocates with him about what loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness would look like in this situation regarding Sodom. And of course, Abraham is very concerned for Lot. And the Lord agrees to spare the entire city if even as much as 10 righteous people are found within it. Chapter 18, verses 17 through 33. And as we saw last week, that whole interchange with Abraham, the Lord seems like he's learning from Abraham, but he's not learning anything. It's Abraham who is doing the learning. And he's going to learn more still as he sees how God handles Sodom and what he does there. Now, I would submit to you that we see something similar to that in the way that God involves these two angels here in his work regarding Sodom. In chapter 18, when God is going to bring Abraham into a conversation about Sodom, he doesn't just launch into that conversation with Abraham. The first thing he does is ask the two angels. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Verse 17. And then he explains to the angels why he wants to bring Abraham in on the plan. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So you see that God is not only concerned with Abraham's growth in knowing him and in understanding righteousness and justice. He's also concerned with the growth of the angels as well. Remember, angels are also called sons of God in Scripture. We're not the only ones called sons of God. You can see that in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and Job chapter 38, verse 7. That's a couple of examples. So Scripture now, let's make some distinctions. Scripture is clear that angels are not the objects of Christ's salvation. They are not the beneficiaries of redemption. Hebrews 2, verse 16. For indeed, God does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Having said that, Scripture does give us indications that the angels, by observing God's salvation through Christ, both the lead up to it in the Old Testament, the accomplishment of it by Jesus in the first century, and now its ongoing unfolding effect upon the world Angels do grow in their knowledge and appreciation of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 tell us that one of God's eternal purposes, which he accomplished in Christ, was to display to the angelic powers in heaven the manifold wisdom of God. That is the multi 
splendor, the multifaceted, the full beauty of God's wisdom. And where does he display that? In the church, in the results of Christ's redemption. So you see, there, there is that, that development that is going on as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 tells us that the Old Testament prophets, as the Spirit of Christ gave them prophecies regarding the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, the Old Testament prophets made careful search and inquiry. They're trying to know more about this salvation and this coming one. But they weren't the only ones who were very curious about that and were wanting to look into that. It tells us that the angels were just as curious and they wanted to look into it as well. We also know that angels, when man fell in the Garden of Eden, they were assigned various responsibilities that were originally intended for man. For example, guarding the Garden of Eden. That was Adam's job. But when he fell, he was expelled from the garden. And then who was given the job of guarding it? The angels. Genesis 3, verse 24. We also get these little glimpses. Again, we're not given full detail on all this stuff. Clearly, God does not want us to be over preoccupied with these things. Otherwise, he would give us a lot of detail. But we do need to pay attention to what he does show us. And one of the things we see in the Old Testament is that angels have a kind of a stewardship over the nations of the earth. Now, that, was again, was supposed to be Adam's job. Man was supposed to exercise dominion and rule over the earth under God. But when man falls, we see angels exercising this kind of a stewardship. We just get these little glimpses. A good example is Daniel chapter 10, verses 10 through 13. There, Daniel has been praying to the Lord for his blessings on his people. And then an angel appears to him, and the angel explains, there's been some delay between the prayer and the angel showing up. The angel explains that he was dispatched as soon as Daniel started praying, but he got impeded and held up by the prince of Persia. And he's not talking about a man. He's talking about an angelic, a fallen angelic power a demonic power, a follower of the evil one who uh, is associated with Persia in some way had, had held him up until Michael, one of the chief princes, again, he's talking about an angelic power, came and helped him. We get these little glimpses. So in Genesis 19, when God sends the two angels to Sodom to determine the level of wickedness and destroy the city if warranted, That's not for God's benefit. He does not need their help. He already knows everything about Sodom. He knows the level of wickedness. He knows destruction is warranted. And he does not need the angel's help in destroying it. God can do all of that in an instant without lifting a finger. He's involving the angels for their benefit, not his. Just like he involves Abraham for his benefit not for God's. That's the reason, that's the way God deals with all of us 
as his children. So Genesis 18 and 19 is really a remarkable vignette, a remarkable window into the nature of God and his loving kindness and the way he involves his children, both human and angelic, in his work of loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Now, going back to our story, when the angels arrive in Sodom, it doesn't take them long to determine beyond all doubt that the wickedness of Sodom is as alleged in the outcry to God. And when we see the events that happen here, we can understand why there would be an outcry, not just by believers in the one true God, but just an outcry in general against what is going on in Sodom. Uh, they can also very quickly determine that there are not even ten righteous in the city. Um, sometimes it's even a question about Lot himself, and then he may be the only one as events unfold. We are left wondering if he is the only one. So in any event, Lot sees the angels enter the city square, and he bows down before them just like Abraham did back in chapter 18. He offers them hospitality just like Abraham, verses 1 and 2. But the angels indicate that they will spend the night in the square, perhaps so they can better assess the wickedness level of the city. But it says in verse 3 that Lot insisted strongly. Now, uh, that doesn't really capture the force of the Hebrew here. This expression here in the Hebrew is the exact same one that's used later in verse 9 when it talks about the men of the city pressed hard against Lot while they were attempting to break down the door. That's the same phrase used here. Lot doesn't just say, oh, you know, he is pressing them hard to stay at his house. And the suggestion is that Lot knows what is going to happen to these men if they stay in the city square. They are going to be gang-raped by the men of the city. They'll be lucky to still be alive. Also notice in verse 2 how Lot kind of deftly suggests that they rise early and go on their way. The suggestion is, the idea here is that Lot wants them up, out of sight, and gone and out of the city before the town folk notice them. And he's trying to get them to his house now before they become noticed. Now, all of this is is one of these glimpses of true faith in Lot and righteousness in Lot. Lot has a lot of weaknesses. He has a lot of frailties. A lot of times it's hard to see the faith in the righteousness in here. But here we do get some glimpses that he's a believer in the one true God. Uh, His hospitality mirrors Abraham's. And he does not like the wickedness of the town. He doesn't agree with it. He doesn't like it. And he's trying to spare these men from it. Now, the New Testament confirms that Lot was a believer and he was righteous. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, 
For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So it's a torture for him at this point to live there because he's constantly having to see and hear the things that they're doing. The sad thing is, is that Lot has ended up in this situation where he is literally hating his life. He's ended up there by his own decisions. So many poor decisions, compromised decisions, decisions that are not really governed by trust in the Lord, nor by biblical wisdom and obedience. Lot just always seems to be like water. He just takes the easiest path at the moment. Back in um, chapter 13, when he um, uh, and Abraham need to separate due to the size of their flocks, Abraham gives Lot first choice. And he doesn't think about it and and reflect on the various... uh, elements of wisdom for for one area of land to another he immediately chooses the plain of jordan why well it's lush and green it seems to represent an easy life there's no further analysis than that he disregards the fact that it's already well known the reputation these cities have for extreme weaknesses that doesn't matter and then we're told very quickly that lot pitched his tent way down by Sodom. Again, despite its status as the leading city of the wicked cities of the plain. But again, Sodom is prosperous and it presents an easy life. At least it seemed to. And perhaps it did for a while, but not in the long term. So Lot ends up hating his life in Sodom. But over the 20 odd years, that's about how long it's been since he separated uh, from Abraham. It's just he's mounted up these decisions, so many foolish decisions uh, and making so many foolish connections to this city that in order to break free from Sodom at this point would require some real heroism of faith on Lot's part. And if there's anything we can see about Lot, believer though he is, is that he is no hero of the faith. He does not have that within him. By this point, he's married a girl from Sodom who does not share his faith or his values. He now has two daughters who have grown up in Sodom and are completely shaped by its culture. His daughters are betrothed to two men of Sodom who basically look upon Lot and his faith as a joke. Now, here it seems confusing. It seems like his daughters are married. It refers to the sons-in-law and all that kind of stuff, and yet the daughters are living with him, and they have not known a man. You have to remember that marriage, a wedding, was a two-stage process back in that day. First of all, you had the betrothal. We'd call it an engagement, but the difference was the marriage oaths were taken at the betrothal, okay? So we would say the marriage oath would be taken at the engagement. The the couple, though, would still be living apart. They would not come together and consummate the marriage until some months later at what was called the wedding feast. 
So these girls are betrothed, which means they've already taken their wedding oaths. So they're called, uh, they're referred to as married. Uh, the, the young men are referred to as his sons-in-law because they've already taken the oath of marriage. This was the exact same situation you had between Mary and Joseph when the Gospels open up and Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. This is in that in-between time between the betrothal and the consummation. And so you see, if there was unfaithfulness during that in-between time, that was not no longer considered fornication. It's adultery. And that's why Mary could have faced, it, faced possible death. And it's also why Joseph, see, he can't simply break the engagement. He can't simply put it off. You couldn't break an engagement then. You had to have a divorce because the oaths have been exchanged. So that's the situation where the, the Lot's daughters are at this time. And so when Lot goes to talk to his sons-in-law, they've already taken the oaths. Again, they don't take Lot seriously at all. And so Lot and his family now, he's no longer in a tent. Abraham's still living in tents. Why? Because he's really not part of the culture and the value system of that land. And he knows that he's still living in tents. Lot now, Lot's in a house. He's put down roots. He's invested money and he's right in the middle of Sodom. So there is no buffer at all between Lot and his family and the city's sinful, unbelieving culture. It's blowing in his windows. It's coming in the door all the time. And this culture is not just unbelieving. It is hostile toward faith in the one true God. This hostility already showed up back in chapter 14 when the king of Sodom was surly and ungrateful and begrudging toward Abraham who had just delivered them from the kings of the east. Begrudging toward them, wanted nothing to do with Abraham, wanted nothing to do with Melchizedek, wanted nothing to do with the God of Abraham or Melchizedek. So you already see this hardened hostility toward the one true God in Sodom. And that is really what is at the base of all the immorality and the hostility and the violence that we see in Sodom. The root sin is not immorality. The root sin is not sexual. The root sin is spiritual. The root sin is is idolatry. You see, one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that God created us for two kinds of monogamy. He created us for spiritual monogamy to the one true God. And as a reflection of that, he created us for sexual monogamy to one member of the opposite sex in marriage because he's training us, he's pulling us in, he's teaching us to love the way he loves. And because of that link that God has built into creation, um, any kind of breach, unfaithfulness toward the one true God, any kind of breaking of the monogamy we owe spiritually to God will inevitably result in a breakdown of sexual monogamy when it comes to marriage and sex. It's not just predictable, it's inevitable. And the worse the unfaithfulness to the one true God, the worse the sexual immorality will get. 
That's why Paul in Romans 1 presents the death spiral in, of, of humanity in turning away from God as a spiritual, sexual, two-step dance. That's the way it works. And so that's what's behind. That's the real core of the problem in Sodom. The sexual part, it's horrible, but it's a result of the previous breach of spiritual monogamy to the one true God. And so as we go along in chapter 19, we continue to see Lot's weaknesses in spite of his faith. When the moment comes to flee, Lot dithers, verses 15 and 16. It appears his wife and daughters have no intention of living their, leaving their city. Uh, they do not believe the word of the angels. And Lot has not engendered any kind of respect from them over the years so that they're inclined to listen to him at all. And he does not have the strength and courage to take charge and compel them to leave for their own good. The angels literally have to grab Lot by the hand, grab his wife, grab his daughters by the hand, and pull them out, yelling for them to escape to the mountains. Verse 17. Even then, Lot is afraid. You would think with all that's coming that he would be running as fast as he could. But he's not. He's afraid. He says that something bad is going to happen to him if he has to go to the mountains. And so he seeks permission to go to a very small sister city there on the plain. In other words, it's another wicked city. But Lot is saying, but it's small. It's little. It's a little wicked city. Let me go to the little wicked city. And so, again, mercy is exercised toward him. The angels agreed not to destroy the little city of Zoar. So Lot and his, and his wife and daughters are told to flee there. And they're specifically told to not look back. But, of course, his wife looks back and is turned to a pillar of salt. Because, see, that look back was not just a look. That was a declaration of allegiance. And it was not to the God who had just saved her. It was to the wicked city and way of life from which she had been saved. So as I said, we have plenty of evidences of Lot's frailties and weaknesses and folly. But we also get these glimpses of his faith uh, from time to time. He does attempt to dissuade the mob from their intended gang rape of the visitors. When he realizes the mob saw the visitors and now they're demanding that they be sent out, Lot goes out alone to face them and he closes the door behind him. Now that's the one thing we see here that required some guts. That required some guts. That would not be easy to do. But even in that, then, we continue to see the compromises and the weaknesses um, as he offers his daughters in lieu of his guests. So even, even though the weakness of this protest from Lot ends up simply infuriating the mob, verse 9, Lot's failure to approve, to join in, to join in to their celebration and agree to their man's is, is taken as proof that he's judging them. You notice this result. He's judging them. This, this mere suggestion 
And instead of engaging in homosexual gang rape tonight, rape tonight how, about, how about heterosexual gang rape tonight? How about that? This guy judging us. That's the way that it is taken. And we see some of that same mentality in our culture today. Failure to celebrate is taken as some kind of a form of judging, hating, violence. Sometimes even silence is said to be violence. And so they tell Lot they're going to deal worse with him. As soon as we finish with them, you're next. So the mob is pressing hard against Lot and against the door, going to break the door down. And when the angels reach out and grab him, pull him inside, and then they strike the mob with blindness so they can't find the door. Now, the the Hebrew word here for blindness doesn't necessarily mean a total blindness, so that now they can't see anything. Uh, What seems to be indicated is like they can see, but they can't see the door, and they can't find the door. And so eventually they weary of looking for it, and and the mob dissipates. So this, what we see here, is an unhinged, unbridled, frenzied, wickedness of both involving both sexual immorality and violent intent. First uh, Peter chapter 2 verse 10 describes the men of Sodom as presumptuous, but presumptuous is a very mild word compared to what the Greek means here. The, the meaning of the word is someone who is so proud and so brash that they lack any kind of proper respect for anybody else or any kind of proper fear of anyone else. It also says that they're self-willed, but it's stronger than that. It means somebody who is so self-absorbed and narcissistic, so self-satisfied, so full of themselves, that therefore they're self-willed. And it also says that they despised authority. So with all of that in mind, I want us to then consider the broader context in terms of how much loving kindness God has already shown to this city of Sodom. Specifically, all the opportunities he has given to them to repent. All the incentives and reasons he has given to them to repent and to turn to God in faith. When Lot first moved to Sodom, again, as I've already noted, it was already well known for exceedingly exceeding wickedness against the Lord. And yet it's been 20 years, 20 years of opportunity to repent. And furthermore, early in that 20 year period, God displayed to this whole town, the whole population, what loving kindness looks like and what promise-keeping righteousness looks like because he rescued the entire population of this city from the kings of the east through the heroism of Abraham, the worshiper and servant of the one true God. And after being rescued, the people watched as further testimony of the living God was provided through Melchizedek, king of nearby Salem, 
also priest of the one true God, who comes out to greet Abraham with bread and wine and blesses him. You could not get a more powerful testimony as to where life and salvation and blessing come from. It does not come from these demonic higher powers that you are worshiping and therefore are caught up in their frenzied wickedness. It doesn't come from them. It comes from the one true creator God, the God who is also the Savior, the God of loving kindness. And you could not possibly receive a more powerful invitation and incentive to repent, to renounce those false gods, to renounce all that extreme immorality which comes from the spiritual infidelity. Instead, the king of Sodom is surly, ungrateful, begrudging, and wants nothing to do, as I mentioned before, with the one true God of Abraham and Melchizedek. You see on the king's part and the people's part this hardened impenitence. Now that was early in this 20-year period. You've got another, what, 15 years of God patiently forbearing giving opportunity to repent, and that opportunity being steadfastly refused. So what God is doing now in this judgment of Sodom is he is cutting out the cancer. He is excising this cancer of evil in Sodom. And when he does so, yes, that is the judgment of the Lord, but we have to realize it's not just God's judgment here. This is also a function, his judgment on Sodom is also a function of his loving kindness and his promise-keeping righteousness because he is acting to preserve man and the earth for redemption. If he doesn't act the way this wickedness is metastasizing, then much more severe action will have to be taken later on. We saw this earlier with Noah's flood. God's judgment there, there he had to cut the whole tree of the human race down to a stump with just one little shoot left, Noah and his sons. And that is to display for all time what sin does. Jesus says sin is like leaven. It affects everything it touches. You put leaven in a recipe, you can't make it behave. You can't put leaven in a recipe and say, now you stay right there. I want you to behave like these chocolate chips and these pecans over here. You don't move. I'm putting you right there. You can't do that to leaven. It's going to go everywhere and everything it touches is going to be transformed into the leaven's own character. Leaven, sin is like leaven. The kingdom of God is like leaven, but it's righteous. But in the meantime, until the righteousness of the leaven of the kingdom of God transforms man and the earth, God has to preserve man and the earth for that redemption. And so he has to intervene and to act out of mercy. He has to bring judgment to preserve man and the earth for uh, redemption. We saw this again with the Tower of Babel. This is after the flood. This time when God sees the autonomous totalitarian effort to essentially bring back the pre-flood days, God acts quickly 
to make that impossible. And he brings the judgment of fragmenting the languages so that they cannot continue in that process. That was of God's loving kindness and promise-keeping righteousness that he did so. So it's in that light that we must view God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and their nearby city soulmates. In all these cases, uh, as we wrap up here, I just want you to, to, to think about the fact of how many different directions God is showing loving kindness, judgment, righteousness, promise-keeping, how many different directions he's doing it at the same time. He's exercising it toward Abraham and Sarah. He's exercising it in a very special way toward Lot and his family. He's exercising it uh, toward these cities. He's dealing with them. He's exercising it toward all of mankind and the earth because they're all involved because redemption has been promised by God. And if he doesn't keep his promise, he's not righteous. So God is doing all of this all at the same time, and he's bringing Abraham in and involving him so that Abraham grows in his knowledge of God and his imitation of God. He brings the angels in and involves them so that they also grow. And the way that God does things and the way that he deals with us, it's the same. God's working in all directions all the time. God is working in all directions all the time exercising loving kindness, exercising righteousness toward us, exercising judgment in the earth. And it is always for the blessing over time of the whole world and all of mankind. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.